The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. Uh, nice to be here again. Uh, nice to see some familiar faces as well. Um, it's always uh, really a pleasure to come to IMC and um, to be invited. Um, whenever I've come to teach here, Gil has invited me personally, and that's really an honor. Um, I was thinking about how Jack Cornfield doesn't call me up to come to Spirit Rock. So <laughs> I, do, I do teach there, but they just have a regular scheduling person. So it's, it's nice to have uh, the top man, um, you know, contact you and bless you and all that. Um, I, I wanted to mention, uh, and I think one of the reasons that uh, Gil invited me to come this week is because I'll be teaching or co-teaching a day-long uh, retreat on July 31st, uh, which is a Saturday, obviously the last day of the month, um, and it's on Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. And I'm co-teaching with Stephanie Tate, who is, uh, leads a group in San Jose, a Dharma and Recovery group. Um, so we'll be, we're, we're, we um, are going to be working particularly with um, the Brahma Viharas, the loving-kindness, uh, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, and talking about them as kind of their healing qualities in relation to uh, recovery from addictions the range of addictions. Uh, I also will say that I brought a few of my books. This is my new one. There, I put them over there by the free books, not to be confused with the free books. Uh, <laughs> if you must, um, that's your, uh, your choice if you want to take one. But uh, there, there's a little envelope uh, with the, um, you can slip in money or, or uh, checks or... Uh, your firstborn, or whatever you think is appropriate. And actually, um, this is all the prelude, sorry. The subtitle of the book actually changed, I guess, since my, that bio. It's, the book is called A Burning Desire, Dharma God and the Path of Recovery. Um, and there's no comma between Dharma and God, uh, which has been a, a disturbance to several Buddhists. Um, but I'm uh, not going to um, get in so much to the uh, recovery topic tonight, uh, partly because um, this is not this group didn't come for that necessarily. Although it does tend tend to slip into uh, my talks, whether I like it or not. Um, but I'd like to talk tonight about um, stories. And how they uh, relate to practice, and how they don't relate to practice, and how they relate to the, the tradition. It's uh, common to uh, come into a, a interview with the teacher and start to talk about yourself and have them kind of ask you not to, to kind of to let go of your story. We're often told this. 
in Buddhist circles. Um, and, uh, and I think that there's, there's, that's a wise guidance. Uh, and yet, it's not so easy to do, certainly. Um, so, so first I want to kind of talk about what I think stories are. Um, just so that um, we understand what I'm talking about. That, um, and anybody who's written fiction at all sort of knows this. Uh, that stories are really uh, selective events that we choose to put together and claim that there is a causal relationship between the arising of each event, one after the other. So if you're you know, in a movie or a novel, a lot is left out. You, know, you don't see people sleeping for eight hours, and you don't see them going to the bathroom, or uh, grocery shopping, and, uh, you know, all the things that we do in our daily lives. We leave out most of it in stories, because it's just not that interesting, all that stuff. But we, we love stories, and they're, they're really important to human beings. Obviously, as far back as we know, I mean, history, <laughs> uh, as opposed to his story, which we won't even go there. Um, but even the, our record of human past is a story, very selective and Obviously, we've seen how uh, revisionist historians can show us a completely different version of what we thought was the story. I've just been reading uh, Mayflower uh, and uh, the story of you know the settlement at Plymouth, and it's you know this when you get the the real story or this other version of it, it's you know horrific. This thing that we grew up thinking was like this wonderful little jolly. Thing, and oh, they came on Thanksgiving and brought it peanut nut cups or something. And, <laughs> and you find out about these horrible wars and battles and violence and racism. And you, you sort of wish you didn't know. You'd rather. But in, our, in our personal lives, of course, stories have a tremendous role as well. And, and this is where we really confront them in practice. You sit down to meditate, the teacher says, follow your breath, and you f- try to figure out what that means, and then you sort of, sort of figure out what that means. Oh yeah, I'm feeling my, the air here. Yeah, good, so you know, when I should go to the... And you're gone. And the story goes off. Uh, and then, well, oh, right, right, I was supposed to be following my breath, come back to the breath, and, and then again, the story goes off. So what are these stories that take us away from our practice? Um, well, again, they are sort of selective collections of events to some extent, which we choose 
to, and and I, I need to expand that definition of story to say that we choose to give meaning to this selection of events. And particularly in our own story, we give it meaning. It tells us something about us. Gives us information. And when we, I, I would say, if we have not explored stories, if we just accept them, we also believe them to be true. We believe our own story to be true. Now, this story that arises in my mind here on Monday night at IMC has been a long time in being shaped. It has its roots in childhood relationships. It has uh, connections to my genetics, my DNA. Um, It, of course, is intimately related to uh, memory. It also is connected to what we could call personality or our, the kind of uh, tonal quality of our personality, the, whether we incline toward the positive or the negative. Uh, so that uh, something arises in the mind and it, ha- it has a great deal of evidence behind it as far as we're concerned, which is why we believe it. It, is, it feels true because it resonates with something emotional, some emotional history that's been repeated over and over. It seems true because you have an image in your mind very often of an experience or a series of experiences. And very often the experiences eventually disappear from the fact of the end of the, the meaning of the story becomes actually the whole story for us. It becomes the thing that we carry with us. And when we go into therapy, for instance, we go back and start unraveling how some of these facts came to be, how they came together. I recall when I was um, 18 or 19, I was playing the guitar, and by then I was a fairly good guitarist. I'd been playing since I was 12, and um, really probably playing virtually every day over those years. And um, I remember saying to to someone... Uh, something that I had believed for a long time. I said to them, you know, and I'm sitting there, (laughs) finger-picking some, you know, blues, lick, fairly complex thing. I don't have much uh, manual dexterity. And they looked at me and said, what are you talking about? Look at how you can play the guitar. Think of how much manual dexterity that has. Well, I had this memory and I don't even know now if it's a memory or if it's just a, a dream. 
of having been told by my father when I was five years old that I didn't have good manual dexterity. Seems like a strange thing for a father to say to a five-year-old. But, you know, I don't think I have to say my father was particularly strange to say fathers can say strange things. I, I, I am one now, and I'm sure there's things that my daughter will remember that uh, I wish I hadn't said. Um, but it was so patently absurd that there I was acting out the opposite of this fact that I believed that was a story that I'd carried with me, unexamined. And that's the new story, by the way. Uh, that I once thought this, and then I le- learned this. Then there was this other experience. But the truth is that I still feel that way. I still feel that I don't have much manual dexterity. I have learned that what I don't, what I probably lack to a degree (laughs) is actually patience. Uh, Because what I recall, the comment was about from my father was about putting together some model. Uh, And that's, if you saw me trying to put together uh, my grill from Home Depot, uh, you would see that uh, there's something lacking. There's also something spatial. But anyway, that's, it's, it all gets so you know, complicated. Well, I was talking to a, a Dharma teacher friend of mine the other day, um, and he's also an author, and so we can commiserate. Um, he said, well, and there's really nothing to write about anymore. No Dharma books to write, because it's all been written. And this was shortly after he told me that he had recently done a performance. This is Wes Nisker, I won't pretend to it was, that it, you know, I have to hide his identity. He, he had recently done a performance at Berkeley Rep, where, where Berkeley, the Berkeley Repertory Theater, where they had asked him to bring in more of his personal story into the performance. So when he said this about there's no Dharma uh, to tell anymore, Dharma books to write anymore, he said, well, that's why they want stories. Because you know, the, all the technical stuff has been told, but people love stories. Stories give us the sense of meaning. You know, the, on, on the personal level, on the national level, on the cultural level. Um, the, the teachings of the Buddha, if you read the suttas, they are stories. They are stories of of the Buddha's time and events that took place and um, many of the time much of the time the Buddha is either telling a story or it's a situation which is being described in the sutta or he often gives uh, creates kind of uh, images that are uh, have narrative elements to them Um, I was on a retreat with Lee Brasington a couple weeks ago (coughs) and 
I don't know if you're familiar with his teaching. He's a wonderful teacher, and uh, he has a pretty amazing mind um, that he can... He recited one of the long suttas from the, the Digha Nikaya. It's called the, the Long Discourses of the Buddha. He recited it, which took about 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, and it was really like the, old, you know, the oral tradition. I mean, this is how this was all passed along. And it was this great, this great sutta in which there's really some drama in it and some, uh, there's some backstory that he filled in. And, uh, and the, the group of us, the 30 or so retreatants, I, I, I was sitting in the back and kind of looked around a little bit to, because my sense was sitting on the edge of my chair, even though I knew the sutta, that it was just the drama of it unfolding and having being told. I really could feel that kind of ancient, uh, you know, primal quality sitting around the the fire with the the elder telling the story, the the, the cultural history. But one of the things that I noticed as he was telling the story was that when he got out of the narrative elements and into the more technical dharma elements, it got more boring. Because it wasn't a story then. It was like, oh, the five hindrances, yeah, the eightfold path. Okay, let's get on. What happens next? You know? <laughs> so when we're sitting, of course, this is one of the reasons why we, the mind keeps wandering, because we want to be entertained. But on some more essential level there's something else going on and that is that a story gives form to the formless and the formless yes perhaps can be boring but it's more frightening and this is I think the more the getting to the primal reason why we create stories, why we create meaning. All there really is, is this moment. Any Buddhist worth their salt knows that. Anybody who's been here for three Dharma talks knows that. All there is, is this moment. There is no story. There is no past to dredge up and to re-experience. There is no future that this is all moving towards. There's only this. And this is formless. Our consciousness is formless. It may have meaning on the level of form, but on the level of formlessness, it has no meaning. It just is. This is not the most appealing concept to a living being. We grasp on to things, to concepts, as well as objects, because they give us a sense of security. There is a, a stage in the, what's called the progress of insight, one of the, the process of moving, we could say, moving towards enlightenment. Uh, the, and this is kind of a traditional Theravadan 
mapping. Again, totally uh, unreal, but just a model, another story. But on, in this map, there's a stage where it's called ro- rolling up the mat, which is the, the, the monks would sit on a mat. So when you're, when you're like, okay, no, no thanks, I'm done, I'm out of here, you roll up the mat and leave. And the reason you roll up the mat is because at that stage you see how it's put in these terms, that everything is impermanent. But we could say it in another way, that everything is formless, that there is no solid thing to hold on to. And that's scary as hell, you know. We're, in so many ways, in a constant process of trying to make solid and make real everything around us. The most, essentially, ourselves to create our own sense of identity. And yet, When we, if once we are prepared for this stage, this rolling up the mat stage, it's really okay, because when you're when you've seen clearly that everything is impermanent, but so what? Kind <laughs> of uh, that is, yeah. Well, I've been doing okay so far, and it's not that everything became impermanent all of a sudden. It's not like everything suddenly is formless and whoa, I've got to work. It's just that I'm finally seeing the truth of it. So if we're prepared for that, which is what a lot of practice traditionally was, is for, is to prepare you for the different realizations. If you're prepared for it, it's actually tremendously freeing. Because this is what the Buddha was telling us, that actually the problem isn't the formlessness. It's the trying to make something solid. It's the trying to hold on to form that causes the angst that we call dukkha, that causes, that's ultimately causing our suffering. So most of the time what we're doing is we are choosing a level of discomfort which we find acceptable so as to avoid the more scary option of having nothing to hold on to. So we, we hold on just enough to make us feel secure. And then if that becomes a problem, we try to, you know, hopefully we let go a little bit or we go through the grieving of having to let go. We would get ripped apart from, from our problem or from our, uh, the, sol- the non-solid thing that we're trying to hold on to. But when we go deeply into practice and come to this place where we actually taste that formlessness, one of the things that becomes apparent is that most of the time we're actually in formlessness. We just don't notice it. This is what, maybe not most of the time, actually. I I don't have statistics on it. but this is what Ajahn Buddhadasa called little nirvanas. He said that 
every day we experience many moments of letting go of ju- and of falling into just not holding on to anything. So in terms of the language I'm using tonight, into formlessness. Little moments. You're just brushing your teeth and you just forget about everything for a second. You know? And he says that if it weren't for these little moments, little nirvanas, that we'd actually become way too stressed out. We'd go crazy. So you can see that our culture is moving, of course, more and more into the crazy realm. There's less and less maybe little nirvanas happening for people. But still, according to him, we wouldn't make it at all if it weren't for this, these moments of letting go. So this is actually the place, I guess, uh, I didn't realize it as I was preparing this talk until I was about halfway through, that this is the, the place that I was working with on this last retreat uh, two weeks ago. And uh, seeing that every time I simply stopped thinking, as you get to do a little bit more on retreats, every time I was just in my body, just in the present moment, that... I was in this formless realm. There was no uh, um, I wasn't creating anything. I wasn't making anything. Things just were as they were. Now, that isn't to say that there wasn't uh, I'm mostly talking about mental when I'm talking about form in that practice way. As we can see that there is there's forms around us. And there's, there's lots of structure to things. Uh, when we probe deeply, though, this teaching on impermanence shows us that what looks to be solid actually isn't solid. So, uh, again, the idea that it's formed and has some concrete existence loses its uh, validity when we look closely and we see that the atoms are all just spinning and uh, the molecules are, uh, that there's mostly space, you know, mostly formlessness in, in an atom. Um, so, where does this leave us? Um, you know, one of the, um, the temptations uh, with practice is to um, latch on to an idea and that, that becomes our, our obsession. Um, so uh, let me say that another way that I can frame what I'm talking about is the relative and the absolute. So form is relative and, and formlessness is the absolute. But it's not that one is uh, more correct or more useful than the other. They actually depend on each other. And in the, the Heart Sutra it says, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. That they actually commingle and that they're, they're, they're interrelated. So if we decide, oh, oh everything is formless, I'm just going to 
you know, stop paying for my life insurance because what's the point? That I don't exist anyway. The future doesn't exist. And why should I be paying into a, a retirement plan when, when there's only this moment? There's no future to retire. Um, we can see that that doesn't work on the level of form. So we have to honor form, but also uh, I would say that the that practice, uh, uh, the Buddhist practice, is trying to correct the in, an imbalance. That that uh, the Buddhist viewpoint, I, I would say, as a spokesman for Buddhism, <laughs> is that uh, we overemphasize form. So let's learn a little bit about formlessness. Let's just sit and do nothing so that we're not creating anything on the physical level, close our eyes so that we're kind of cu- cutting ourselves off a little bit from, the, from our sense experience, and see if we can just be, so that we can see and become aware of this formless realm. So getting back to what this talk was supposed to be about stories as we try to work into that formless realm and the story comes up we start to work with this in a new way because as we have insight into formlessness as we start to see that my story is uh, created by me, I can say by me, um, we can start to change our relationship to the story, which is a critical aspect of practice, and I would say a critical aspect of any spiritual or really personal development, is to see that our story is made up, can be deconstructed. And that we can actually remove ourselves from the story and look at it as an object and we can question the story and look at its components and say, is this true? Is this useful? Does this still have meaning? Because, of course, our story is changing all the time, even though we hold, you know, our memories are changing. You, you think you remember something, but then you remember it differently. So when we can start to see our stories as constructs, then someone asks you about your life and you can talk about it, but you can hold it differently in your heart. And as you start to think about it, if, there, if pain starts to arise, for instance, you can step back and say, oh, wow, this is, story has created pain for me. And then you can see whether it's really useful, whether it's really true, whether there's some component of it that can be revisioned or re-understood. This is where things like compassion come in. Rather than thinking, our, uh, you know, wallowing in our misery to think, oh, this was difficult, this was painful, and bringing in that sense of compassion, which is something we also contain besides our story. Um, So the idea ultimately is to learn from 
the story, see what's useful there, and then to let go of what's not helpful. You know, when I was working on um, my first book, one of my ideas, which I didn't follow through on, because uh, it just didn't work for the book, was to, and I actually wrote this stuff, but it didn't get published, was to have a, a chapter called Two Stories. And it was two different versions of my life before I got sober. And it was these two streams that I saw that there was this stream that was moving towards spiritual growth, that was interested in uh, you know, becoming a better person, becoming a wiser person, finding my way in the world. And then there was the part of me that was just seeking after pleasure, that, that was um, you know, ad- addicted to drugs and alcohol and other things. Um, and they were kind of two different versions. And before I got sober, I believed more in the one that was about the spiritual growth. And then when I got sober, I started to see that there was this other story. Oh, I could also tell it like this. After a while, I realized that one of the things that people do in recovery very often is they start to so emphasize the, the addiction story that they lose the fact that actually something brought them to recovery. And it wasn't their addiction. Yeah, their addiction was the motivating, the, the suffering that motivated them. But the thing that motivated them to change, to grow, was something else that was very often going on. So people have... And, we, and when we neglect one aspect of the story, we see ourselves as, oh, I was bad then, now I'm good. Um, and and we, we, we throw away all this this time of ourselves and sort of uh, um, stigmatize our, our, ourselves. So in these ways we can start to take apart our own story and rather than be a victim of it, we can use it as a, as a gift to ourselves and to others. Uh, and to hold it lightly, you know, uh, even as others may project onto us who we are. I mean, you know, an author, you know, uh, Jim read my bio, right? Well, I wrote my bio, you know. (laughs) Nobody does that for you at the publishing company, you know. And you have to get into this weird role. Okay, you've got to make it sound really professional and, you know, like you've done all these things and, you know, and and it's got to be in the third person for it to sound authoritative. And it's it's just a story, you know, a convenient story that goes well in the back of the book that will hopefully make you want to buy the book. You know, it's not true. It's not not true. It's just a story. So those are some thoughts, a story, a connection of ideas that are an attempt to make coherence out of the formless. I hope it's of some help. That, as Ajahn Amaro says, take what's useful and please leave the rest behind. Thank you. We have a few minutes. I think we end at nine. So if there are any questions, 
or thoughts anyone would like to share, I'd be happy to uh, dialogue with you. And it can be on anything. Yeah. Oh, you're going to give her the microphone? Very good. Something occurred to me when you, you started with the title of your book about Buddha and God without the comma. Yeah. And then you talked about formlessness. And I was thinking about God and formlessness. And you said that people can find formlessness and emptiness very scary. Mm-hmm. Um, it occurred to me that Buddhists have to be a very mature lot because to be comfortable with formlessness, which does provoke fear for me, um, to be comfortable in that realm, often fear does not bring out the very best in humans. Hmm. Right. I wanted to know um, if you could comment on that from your life experience. Drawing on the fear of formlessness that you referenced, um, do you face fears far more in Buddhism than you did before? you found Buddhism in recovery. I don't know. I, 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 it's hard to, hard to remember. <laughs> I've now been practicing, officially practicing Buddhism for, for half my life. Um, and that everything's a little fuzzy back there. Um, Uh, but I can, uh, I, I can certainly talk about that relationship to fear. That uh, that uh, you know, what I see is that people that fundamentalism of all sorts is rooted in fear of of is fear of the unknown, and so fear of the formless in the, in the language we're using tonight. Um, I think that uh, when I came to Buddhism, I was um, grateful for the don't know mind that don't because it actually explained a lot more than the things, the the forms, which had not that it all broken down, and and as you say, I, I. I, I agree, but we, you know we're all going to pat ourselves on the back. Yes, Buddhism is the best thing. Um, there, there is a certain spiritual maturity to being able to come to that place. It's a it's a a stage of spiritual development. When uh, and um, Scott Peck talks about this in his book, A Different Drum. These the, and and they the different stages of spiritual development and, uh, you know, rejection of traditional forms is one of the, is a stage after the clinging to the form, right? So, um, but we all, you know, our, that primal tendency is to grab onto um, one idea and say, okay, this is right, and if I just do this, then I'll be okay. Then I will be saved, or I'll be redeemed, or I'll be enlightened. 
you know, and so you know we want to stick with that but but if you if you find yourself disillusioned by something like that as i i was uh to come to something that says no actually there's isn't an answer like that you know it's actually just happening in the present moment the truth of it the reality of it felt in harmony with my experience it felt in harmony with the reality that i knew so even though there was that loss of security it was a greater sense of security because it wasn't the the problem with those single answers or fundamentalism and and when i say fundamentalism i really mean that in the broadest sense because i see fundamentalism in many forms not just religion but the problem with the single answer or the black and white solution is that you're always having to hold on so tightly to it and and, and fend off all the things that are disproving it that it's very it's ultimately kind of uncomfortable and, and when you because it's you're holding on to a lie you know and so when you let go of that it's really a relief to just go fine I'll just fall into the void you know, great. That's where I, as I said before, that's where I was anyway. So now I'm just acknowledging it and I don't have to hold on to something else. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't, I never would have thought of that until you said it, until you asked the question. Yeah. Um, I really I enjoyed the talk, but uh, if you don't if you don't mind, but us, <laughs> no, but no, no, no. <laughs> go ahead. You, you, you'll see what I mean. If you don't, if I may steer it back toward addiction for just a minute, uh, and I don't I don't um, suppose there's an easy uh, solution to this. Uh, I don't even know what question I'm about to ask, but I do know that there's someone in my world. Uh, a young person who's experiencing um, drug addiction and it seems to be escalating and going from softer to harder. And then the various behavioral problems associated with that. And I see this person surrounded by a constellation of people trying to help him. Um, you know, I see that their intentions are, are good, but there's, you know, the usual dysfunctional family um, relationships work and I'm, I'm, I'm outside of this but I, but I see it um, I'm not related to or friends with really anyone this, but, but I see what's happening and I'm, I'm just curious um, from your experience what is the um, best way to is there a best way, is there a way to go forward in a situation like that with someone who clearly needs help probably too young and too wrapped up in his everything to ask for help and yet surrounded by people wanting to help him. I think the best way would be Inception. I don't know if you've seen the movie yet. But Not the, yet. Uh, it's, uh, if you could plant the idea in the person's head in their subconscious and make them believe it. Um, now there, you know, there's interventionists 
I don't know how effective they are. Um, but the uh, traditionally, and I, this seems to have some validity. The the key is for someone to hit their own bottom, whatever that is. Doesn't necessarily mean that everything falls apart, but that somehow they get confronted. They see the truth of their own problem, and you can't see, make someone else see that a truth. You know, you can't make anyone else think anyone anything. Um, you know, the the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous talked about how they would wait until their prospect was at the end of a binge. You know, hung over, and then they would drop in on him, say, "How you doing?" You know, uh, you sick of the? Are you done yet? Would you like to try a different way? So that's that's kind of the. That seems to be the key. Um, but uh, certainly, it's um, it's no reason people shouldn't try to help. But. Um, it's a very complicated thing because the the trying in itself is often coming out of their own uh, need for this person to be different, and and that person, the, the addict, knows that instinctively, and uh, and then he's yeah. this is hard to watch a car crash. And, it is. Um, it's very painful, and I get you know regular emails about them. Uh, it's the hardest thing. You know, what, when you talk about uh, treatment and recovery, it's all about what to do for people who have decided they want to get sober. You know, there's very little out there about the 90% of people who never even try. You know, that's that's the, the problem that nobody seems to have an answer for. So we have... Fortunately, run out of time, so there won't be any more questions like that. Um, just to say that uh, this center is supported entirely by your donations, and uh, you can give donations to the center or to me. So anything is appreciated. And uh, I will not keep you any longer, but uh, may all beings be free from suffering. <laughs>